0: Ryan Miller, and for the past 15 years, I've helped hundreds of people to raise millions of dollars for their funds and for their startups. If you're serious about raising money, launching your business, or taking your life to the next level, this show will give you the answers so that you too can enjoy your pursuit of making billions. Let's get into it. Can we just admit that pitching institutional investors is literally one of the most challenging things when raising money? So in this week's episode, I have my dear friend, John Jennings, talk about what he likes to see when getting pitched at his $15 billion investment firm. I can promise you it's not what you think. Stay tuned for all of this and more coming right now. Here we go. Hey, welcome to another episode of Making Billions. I'm your host, Ryan Miller. And today I have my dear friend, John Jennings. John is the president and chief strategist of a $15 billion family office group known as the St. Louis Family Trust. He manages assets and allocations of 60 high net worth families. And he's an adjunct professor at Washington University, a Forbes contributor, and the author of the Amazon number one bestseller, the uncertainty solution. So what this means is that John understands institutional capital and family offices, and he's agreed to come on the show to give you his advice on raising capital and asset allocation in the sector. So John, welcome to the show, man.
1: Great. Thank you. I'm super excited to be on. I mean, I've been, it's like people calling the radio shows like long time listener, first time caller. So long time listener, first time on the show. (laughs) And I also understand, and it makes me feel good is that your listeners Are not only just, uh, you know, way above average in intelligence and success, but they're all extremely attractive. So. <laughs> glad to put myself in that pool
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah well we're certainly an honor to have you and you know it, it the, the show is done very well and you're very generous and it's all because of amazing guests like you so you know really quick just in like 30, 60 seconds tell us a little bit about what you do how did you get there and just just warm us up a little bit yeah so I uh, started as a, a
1: state planning and tax lawyer and I also did a little bit of traffic law still do <laughs> uh, it worked at Arthur Anderson um, doing investments and high-end tax planning strategy, tax shelters. It was a bunch of fun. And then you may remember that Enron thing, right? So Anderson, and it's really affected my worldview is, you know, we had 90,000 employees worldwide and in the span of nine months went out of business and we uh, formed our current company, St. Louis Trust and Family Office out of the ashes of Arthur Anderson. Hmm. And, you know, at the time I was like, oh, this is horrible, but uh, it's selfishly turned out pretty good. And our secret sauce is, is we have 60 client families all across the U.S. Actually, most of them aren't in St. Louis or a lot of them never been to St. Louis, but we're 64 employees. So we're, you know, have this one-to-one employee to client ratio. And so it allows us to be incredibly customized because, you know, our clients are mainly in the hundred million and up space. So they have a lot of complexity, need a lot of service, have a lot of, lot of opportunities, but a lot of, uh, you know, challenges as well. So yeah, that's what we do. And I'm um,
0: president. I've been there, like I said, since day one, it's been fun. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. So we we go we we go from practicing uh, some law and and uh, all these things and finding your way uh, rising like a phoenix out of the ashes of Arthur Anderson <laughs> yeah, exactly. to yeah. save ultra high net worth people and and that really helped to drill down. Now yeah. at fifteen billion, and that's in the aggregate of, of all the stuff of of the families that you support. Yeah. I would say you're 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 right at that institutional level. I mean, that's yeah. just my opinion, but you know, your perspective on this, this is not a fam- small family office folks. This is right. a large institutional investor and asset allocator and manager. Now, with all of that experience, we'll get into that big sexy stuff and the billions of dollars. But before we do, we got people in 100 countries listening around the world as as young as high school. Apparently there's a, there's a high school in Texas that literally learns finance from this show. So oh, wow. yeah, we got to love the kids out there and all the way to other family offices and people like yourself and everything in between. So that being said, there are people listening. So let's let's address the beginners before we get on to the more advanced stuff. So that being said, John, I'm just curious for the beginners out there, how do they win in the early days in asset allocation, in really just getting started in high finance so that they can get to that level? What would you say?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I had this big watershed event that many of us had if they were, you know, out working doing this uh, in the financial crisis. And I'll tell you, up until the financial crisis, I thought to be, you know, a good financial advisor or investment expert. Like I had to know everything. Like I just drank from the fire hose of, of information. You know, I read obviously the Wall Street Journal and every day and Barron's and investors business daily and financial times. I subscribed to all these services and you know, I read what all of our investment managers did. And I was like this walking, talking encyclopedia know it all of what was going on in the financial world. But you know, something funny happened is I didn't see the financial crisis coming. And then once we were in it, I couldn't see a way out, right? And I, I tell the story in my book, but I have this coworker. She's super bright, you know, CPA, went to Tulane. You know, she's fantastic. One of the co-founders of my firm. But like, I went to this client meeting with her and she was so calm. It was like March of 09, right? And she was like so calm. And I knew, I knew so much more than her about the market but like she gave such better advice. And I was like, okay, something has to change. So really what I did is after the financial crisis, is I turned off a lot of the news, a lot of the noise, trying to stay up with everything. And I shifted to seeking wisdom by reading more and more books, you know, and I read a ton of investment books, but also other areas, you know, physics and statistics and psychology, works of fiction, and a lot of biographies, and it's interesting. Charlie Munger, you know, recently passed, but you know, one of the wisest you know, men you know, around, you know, said you'll you'll learn more by reading books than reading research reports and ten you know, ks and and everything. And, and he said you, you learn more by reading 100 biographies than 100 investment books. And and I, I really think it really differentiates people to go read you know read books because you'll 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 have somebody that you know spent I don't know decades of experience, and then they'll write and tell you basically what. They learned and you can read it all in like four or five, six hours. It's, it's, it's amazing. And so, yeah, that's my biggest, my biggest piece of advice of people of all ages. You got to be a reader and read books when people are like, oh, I read, you know, you know, I'm I'm always reading, but I'm reading, you know, like news reports and (laughs) white papers. I'm like, yeah, not, not the same.
0: And that's that's uh, I would say listening to you on that. That's the difference between absorbing knowledge and absorbing wisdom that you first alluded to is to say, you know, do you know the most? Well, did this person know the most in your opinion? Probably not. But they had some some a way about them that communicated information in a wise way.
1: Like I, I read 66 books last year. I read. 69 the year before In 2019, I read 101 books because so my goal was a, was a hundred. And, um, and one thing, one thing about having a, you know, a goal of reading a lot of books and, you know, I think at least a book a month, but you can do two or three, four a month, uh, I, I think without a whole lot of uh, trouble is it, is it keeps you from doing other things that are going to distract you and probably waste your time. Like if you're spending any time on TikTok or X or Facebook or any social media, or if you're just like flipping around, like you, you should be, you should be acquiring wisdom. From a book, I love that, it, or, or or you know, enjoying a great work of fiction.
0: Yeah, that's right. And so, what does that do as far as? So here we are, we're cranking through those books. These are the beginners, your early days, are just absorbing that information. Now, that reminds me, when I was young, and I, I've told you this story, so we'll we'll tell it to the world. But when I was a young analyst, starting out, just like you suggested to people starting out, I just finished grad school and. I would take the train 1 hour each way. And I was just an analyst, like just entry level, nothing fancy, just a number in a in a company of 15,000 employees. I would picture the day that I was in an interview to be an executive. And I said that day's going to come, right? I'm young, I'm in my late 20s and just finished grad school. And I would study old textbooks and I would study information and I would just continue to say, I'm going to be the best at what I do. Not the best in the world. There's no ego. It's just, I really want to add value. And in order for me to do that, I had to become someone who could provide value. And so I stayed on top of that. I read everything I could get my hands on from leadership to portfolio management to finance, accounting, derivatives, central banking, literally everything I could find. Statistics, as you mentioned. And after a few years of that, two hours a day, five days a week for about five years, my next job was a CFO and i literally made this like literally from the bottom of the the metaphorical totem pole to the top in 5 years yeah in 5 years and that was all from that and when that moment came that i envisioned 5 years before that it was a shoe in and, and and in that moment, you want to feel prepared. And that's a mind game that provides. And so, based on that mind game, John, I'm curious of like, has that, how does that help you? Like, does that help you with flow? Like, what is, what does that do when you read that much in the early days? Yeah. And I still read that much now. Right.
1: So, yeah. And I'd say early, in the earlier days, I would, I would focus a little bit more on, you know, my profession. Right. And, you know, whether that was law or, or tax, I'd, I'd actually, you know, read these, these like, Homes, these treatises on, you know, like estate planning and tax law and things, but but I, but you know, I, I re, what what it does is it gives you perspective and it like gives you more reps, right? So you know you have your own career and your own experiences and it's this limited set of data points, but when you read a lot of other things, there's all these things that you can bring in. I mean, Charlie Munger talks about them as being these mental models, right? Yeah. So you need, he says, you know, you need to create these mental models that which are really ways of thinking and things that are true that you can fall back on. And like an example of a mental model. And it would be, you know, wisdom would be, you know, Warren Buffett's, you know, be greedy when the markets are fearful and fearful when the markets are greedy. I mean, it's, you know, it's right because it's simple, but it's not easy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. right. And, and, you, you know, you, you start picking up all sorts of things like that by reading, you know, books and be, read books by, you know, the great investors and, and, uh, and again, biographies and, and also, you know, I, I don't want to mean to think you know, there's some people that just read nonfiction, like seriously read some fiction too. It does these creative things in your brain. I had epiphanies about the world after reading a, you know, a, a section of a, of a, of a work of fiction. But yeah, I think it, it trains you in a, in a way, uh, it's different than if you're, you know, passively consuming TV or you're reading, you know, things in, in the wall street journal or on, you know, uh, different, different articles. I, I think it's a, it's a nice discipline and gives you a great, great perspective.
0: I love that. And, you know, in my early days, and, and you can, you keep me honest here, John, in my early days, um, I would pursue money. And I thought that was a noble pursuit. And and it is to a point. What have you found? Have you found that to be, I mean, not only yourself, but also all of these ultra high net worth families that you speak with, all of these people who've had some very exceptional success in the finance area. What have you found to be true that you can advise beginners as far as the pursuit of money.
1: Yeah. So in my career, so I'm 53, so I'm not like super old, but nor, nor am I like, you know, starting my career. I'm kind of like, I'm the, you know, the, the, the
0: planning for the, <laughs> now you're ramping up, man, you're ramping yeah, up. Yeah, exactly.
1: But, yeah. um, you know, what, I, what I've noticed both with, with families that I work with and just throughout my career at different places is that the people that focus on money are sort of, you know, less happy <laughs> and, uh, often end up being less successful because when you, pursue the money aspect. That's not always the best thing for you. Right. And, and it's interesting. Um, my, my next book that I'm, I'm writing is, is about money and happiness. So it's, it's related to my observations of spending 25 plus years in this industry with working alongside and getting like the inside view of these, these really wealthy families, but it's backed by a lot of research. And there's a number of uh, paradoxes uh, about seeking wealth. And, and, and the first is, is that more money is correlated with more happiness and more life satisfaction. And that makes sense. I mean, it's not, it's not a super strong correlation and it it starts, you know, having diminishing marginal returns as you get more and more money. I mean, that makes total sense. Right. But you know, people that have, you know, people that make $500,000 tend to be a little more happier and have a little bit more life satisfaction than somebody makes $200,000. It's just, that that's how it is. But, but what's interesting is is studies have, have looked at, but if your goal is financial success, you end up being less happy. Related to that again, you know, being successful in your career is great. Like it's, it's really fantastic to be successful in your career. And it gives you, a, you know, once you have success, it gives you self-esteem, gives you life satisfaction, correlates to happiness. But those that focus on career success and like that, that's a big driving force. And, you know, think of people, that you know, are really ambitious. They're less happy and end up being less successful. And, you know, Adam Grant, and I know, uh, uh, Ryan, you and I have talked about Aaron Grant. Really like his work. Big fan. One of his, one of his early books was called Give and Take, and it's about givers and takers. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating. What he found is givers. So people that are wanting to put value out in the world without expectation of return and to help other people. They're less focused on themselves. Whereas takers are more ambitious. They're more calculating. They're more concerned with money and status and prestige, and they're more of a taker. What, What he found is, is that givers both were the most successful and the least successful right? So some givers can get taken advantage of, right? And then you have the takers kind of in the middle, but across the board, the most successful people were the people that were givers. And I'll tell you, um, my, my career really took a shift back around 2010 when I decided, I remember I, I, was, I was running and I, I decided, you know, I'm going to stop worrying about my career, how much I make, getting promoted, anything else. And I'm just going to focus on other people. Now, no one can do that hundred percent, but I'm really going to focus on the people at my firm, the younger people, bringing them along, training them, helping them and up my game, even with my clients, I'm going to focus on everybody else. And I was doing really well up until then. But, but at that point, like my career took off. And I think that's one of the hard things as I've managed people over time is getting people to understand that you will have greater career success. If you focus on other people, put other people, put the company, put your clients first, don't worry about yourself. <laughs> All those other good things will come. But as a result, not as a goal. So, you know, don't uh, financial success should not be your number one goal. Career success should not be your number one goal. Do what you love, what you love to do, and what you're good at. And all the rest will pretty much take care of itself. Stay with us. We'll be right back. AI is changing the game of business. Will you be on the winning team? I'm Jordan Wilson, the host of the Everyday AI podcast and your coach to help you learn the X's and O's of AI. Artificial intelligence isn't just a new player in the game. It's a new sport altogether. So if you don't quickly put AI into play, your competitors will run up the score. I've spent my whole life building winning teams from coaching basketball to working with big players like Nike and Jordan brand. My next move, helping you win with everyday AI. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or on everydayaipodcast.com. Let's tap into AI together and put points on the board.
0: I love that. So having money does show a correlation to happiness, Absolutely. but having a goal to have money as a correlation to unhappiness. Is that right? Absolutely. I love yeah. that. And,
1: and people may say, well, what about that study that shows once you have 75 grand and that if you adjust for inflation it's about 90 grand, what, okay. what, 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 if you have, you know, over 90 grand, it doesn't add to your, your, happiness. So two things about that. So number one, that study, um, a lot of people don't realize it, but the are the authors on that study. One was Angus Deaton. Most people don't know, but the other is Daniel Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman did that 75 yeah. grand study that's so famous, you know, author of Thinking Fast and Slow, Nobel mm-hmm. Prize winner in economics in '02. 2 But he uh, you know, what they found in that paper, if you read it, first of all, is that life satisfaction continues to increase while happiness kind of tops tops out. So, so you know, that's that's pretty interesting because it's not like you can just get happier and happier forever, right? So that's number one. But then number two, there was a there was a second paper by a different researcher using the same set of data. It comes from a, a, the, the general social survey. And he found that happiness and life satisfaction both continue to increase. Again, they increase less and less. It's a diminishing term, but it continued to increase. And in something that almost never happens in science or social science, Daniel Kahneman and Matthew Killingsworth, the other, the other author of the paper, got together and did a joint paper reconciling the two. Hmm. And what they found, this came out about a year ago, and it's got, of course, everybody loves the 75 grand paper, but the the paper that corrects it like has gotten no press. Right. But what they found was that Kahneman's original paper, there was this there's these 20 percent of people about that are just basically unhappy people. Hmm. And basically what happens is, is they get happier or less unhappy up until about 75 grand and then they top out. But for the other 80%, they continue to get happier, right? So, so for most people, the happiness continues. And there's, there's, you know, there's, there's a study out of Harvard from 2018 that looked at the wealth of people and they found that, yeah, people that have over 10 million are happier and have more life satisfaction than people less than 10 million. Uh, um, there's a study in 1985 of the Forbes 400. Not all of them, you know, replied, but they found people that were on the Forbes 400 were a little bit, not a lot, but a little more happier than people that weren't, all, weren't on the Forbes 400. And it sort of makes sense because like, when you have more wealth, you have the ability, first of all, to avoid things that are bad, like, you know, not having money and, you know, and ramen having, noodles, card have, ramen noodles, all that thing. But then there's other things, like the things that you can do that do help your happiness, like buying experiences, doing things with other people, giving to other people, buying time. So like, I don't, mow my lawn or do my leaves anymore. And I love that. You know, (laughs) you know, there's all these other things you can do to buy time and all that comes with more and more money. So this idea that money doesn't buy happiness. No, but if you use it correctly and you have your head in the right space in terms of, you know, what, what you're following in life, the money actually can create more happiness. But the paradox is for all the listeners is, but you can't have the money as your goal. It needs to be the result of
0: doing something that you love and that you're good at. Yes. And be a giver as well. So be I, a I, giver. I love that. And, and I say a serious thing in a kind of a silly way, but I often tell people, and, and I've told you this, John, when we, we've talked before, but um, being generous made me rich. That is literally the thing that changed it all. When I was a young man, just starting out, um, probably pursuing money, exactly what we said, don't do. But I, I, oh, I, I did in my twenties too. Yeah, yeah. Right. Cause you're just like, okay, hey, I graduated school. I guess the next thing is, you know, go make a career and buy your house. And so, you know, there's a lot of acquisitions going on earlier in your your real career. So you need money. But very quickly, I realized, um, and that was just, it wasn't a tactic. It's just how I am, is I would generously provide. And I remember the first time that this worked and the gentleman turned into my mentor. So he's, you know, six, three, nine kids worth a hundred million dollars had gold mines and oil wells and wait, engineering. Wait, 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 why, why does six, three come into it? I don't know. It's just, large, just he, he's, a, <laughs> he's a lot. So how, how tall are you? How tall are uh, you? Six feet. Oh yeah. yeah. So, you know, yeah, he, he was just I'm just like, who is this guy? Like, literally, you're an outlier in everything. And so so when, I, so when I talked to him, I found out that he was building 132 megawatt power plant in a local area. And so I said, hey, man, I just graduated. grad. Like this guy could have hired Deloitte, could have hired anybody. I said, hey, I just finished grad school. I will build you the nicest financial model you've seen. I mean, not only will it be accurate, this thing will be a piece of art. Like you will be super pumped to show this to your investors. This will be beautiful and it will be effective and dynamic and all these things. And I said, the best part is I won't even charge you. I have, which trust me at the time, I really wanted to charge them. But I said, look, I would just want to learn from you and your investors and your other partners. And so I walk into this room, there's billionaires, there's finance emissaries of Saudi, the Saudi crown prince. There's all these people in this room, very interested. I show them the model, blow their mind. All that stuff happened. But the point is not what I did, but how I got in that room was from being a giver, exactly like John said. And this guy was so impressed. And I knew he would be because I gave him everything I had, every ounce of education that John talked about filling your mind with. I gave him everything I had and charged him nothing. And I show up at his office in the biggest boardroom I'd ever been in, and it completely changed my life. Why? Because I chose to give. And so by giving, and that was the moment, friends, that two things happened. Not only did I realize that my generosity was an asset, but I also realized that it can actually change your career. And in that moment, that change happened was finding money was no longer my goal. This is exactly what John's talking about. Just hit me. Just hit me, brother. I love it. So, by not making so pursuit of money can be okay. Having money is great, but don't make it a goal. I think is what we're hearing if you want fulfillment in the early days. I love that. Now, for the beginners, how do you not lose? How do you not get your clock cleaned in the early days?
1: Yeah, so I think I think a lot of it is is like, you know, losing is more like a mindset, right? Like you're going you're going to have, you know, failures and um you know, I, I shared this, this story with you uh, recently, Ryan, that you know, my, my freshman year in college, I went to TCU uh, uh, and I made a 1.8 and a 2.4, lost my academic scholarship and uh, my parents yanked me. And it was like, at the time, I thought it was like the worst experience of my life. And it, looking back, it was one of the best experiences. And you know, we just discussed how my firm came out of the ashes of Arthur Anderson at the time. I'm like, this is horrible. My company's going under, what am I going to do? But I wouldn't have had the opportunity to start this company without having that horrible thing happen. And so I think it's how you, how you react. And a lot of times things that are negative end up being the most meaningful. There was this, you know, fascinating study where they, they took, uh, they surveyed all these people and they said, you know, think, think back to something that's happened at least more than two years ago that was really positive. And how did you feel about it then? And how do you feel about it now? And then how meaningful is it now? And the same thing with negative, think about a, you know, very negative thing. How did you feel then? How do you feel now? How meaningful? And what they found is, is the positive things don't feel as positive now. Makes sense. And the negative things Don't seem as negative now. So like we have something that is known as having like your, um, emotional immune system, right? So we we think that if something bad happens, it's going to be horrible and it can be horrible, but we adjust to it is is basically what happens. But then what, what they said is, is, is how meaningful did you find those negative experiences? And with a huge margin, people found in general, the negative experiences, the most meaningful in their lives. And, and I think that's really something to hold on to when things don't go your way and you fail and you will fail and hopefully you learn from it, but then realize this will be, you know, something that will end up being a positive or, or I'll take great meaning from it later. And, and it's interesting, um, you know, I've, I've two kids, 21 and, and 24, but, um, you know, I have a very big interest also in like, how do you, how do you raise kids in affluence, you know, for like for our, our, our families and Clayton Christensen, who was a, a, a you know, a Harvard professor and wrote the great book, The Innovator's Dilemma. Uh, but he also wrote a book, um, how, how Will You Measure Your Life? And in there, he talks about the fact that as parents, that what, what maybe you should do is, is help curate failures for your kids. And think about like, regardless of how old your kids are, you know, whether you're talking about a five-year-old or a 15, 20, 25-year-old, be thinking like, what sort of failures should they have in order to be a competent, you know, fulfilled sort of person? And, and, you know, and, and as, as bad as it is, you'd be like, oh, well, you know, I, you know, I want them to date people and I want at least one heartbreaking breakup. Like, can you imagine like the first, you know, person that you meet and start dating, you end up marrying like no. No, you need some breakups. Right. So exactly. You think about that as a, as a, as a parent of all the things. And, you know, uh, you know, parents are always like, oh, I want my kid to make all A's. No, like it's great to have your kid bring home a C and have to struggle through that, you know, and redeem themselves and, and try hard to get that grade up. Right. So it's, uh, or even a D or an F. I, I made a few at TCU. So, yeah. So I think the way you don't lose is, is expect failure and and plan ahead about, you know, how, how you're going to handle it and realize it's going to be, you know, likely this amazing resilient experience. Um.
0: Yeah, I love that. And you know, when I when I you remind me of you know I I have children a little bit, uh, quite a bit younger than yours, so I'm I'm just getting started, buddy. But um, one of the things I told my wife, just from a male and a father perspective, is I said, you know what, I believe in talking about raising people in affluence and, and the pursuit of billions and raising children in that environment. I said I believe in in the concept of what I called controlled struggle. Yeah. And by that I mean, as a father, my job's obviously by control. I mean I I scrub any scenario of danger. But I don't scrub it of struggle because there was a, an old movie from the 90s, I remember. I believe it's called Higher Learning. And in there, he talks about without struggle, there can be no progress. And I've never forgotten that 30 years ago. Without struggle, there is no progress. But <laughs> with danger, there's there's no progress either. And so as a, helping people understand that. And so here's what I found, right? So people listening are like, I don't have kids. How does this apply? Let me tell you, subjecting yourself to your own controlled struggle can help you level up. And so when that time comes that John and I are talking about that, you just get your clock clean, right? You tried everything and it just didn't work out, right? Like for your moment with Arthur Anderson, we all have these upsets, whether it's in romantic relationships, in our careers, whatever that might be, that moment may be coming or it has already. But one of the best things you can do, not only for yourself, but to prepare your children if that's who you are in your life. One of the things that I have found extremely helpful is by subjecting myself to my own controlled struggle so that when that day comes or if it comes, either one, that you are not uncomfortable with struggle. Now danger that's a different story. That's not what I'm talking about. Obviously keep yourself safe. And this is so wise and what the the
1: the the psychologist educators say about this. They what they call it is is uh, allow your kids to have affordable mistakes. It's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I run every I run every morning with my 7-year-old son in the Canadian winter. <laughs> it's cold. But we're properly prepared and it's controlled struggle. It's not dangerous and it's controlled struggle and literally Yesterday we had people, two people roll down their window and be like, you guys are awesome. What are you doing? It is like minus 30 right now. So aligning to that, not only does that allow you to really have a good sense to say, look, if you want to be healthy, if you want to get your money right, first be okay with being uncomfortable. Now, that being said, I did, I did tease the audience that uh, we're here to talk about institutional capital as well. So we talked to the beginner. So let's, let's really punch this thing up and get into the institution sphere. So that being said, let's start with the market. What are you seeing out there as the chief strategist of a $15 billion trust? What are you seeing? What's your predictions? I know you're in Forbes all the time. What are you seeing out there?
1: Yeah. So really, and, and in my book, i have like an entire chapter on, um, um, predictions and expert predictions <laughs> and, and i'll tell you so the the market, the stock market and the economy and even politics it, it follows something what's known as a, a complex adaptive system and what a complex adaptive system is when you you can't tell the nature of what the output's going to be Based on the inputs, and, and this happens because in, in the, the stock market, the economy is because you have all these intelligent actors—you know, people, firms, and everything—that that learn and they can change their behavior, and they, they change their behavior because of things that happen externally, and then they're watching everybody watch everybody else, and then it creates real effects that cause feedback loops, right? So, I mean, if you think back to like you know AMC and GameStop and everything, right? So, so basically you know, you had these, these people on Reddit, <laughs> I think it was, they decided, okay, you know, let's make this, this stock go up. And, and they did. And then more people were buying because it was going up. Right. And it was, there was like no fundamentals. They're just like, we're going to buy because other people are going to make it go up. Right. So we, we've all been there where this sort of thing happens, but then it caused real effects. Like what AMC did, which was fascinating is they raised more capital, <laughs> you know, and it, it probably helped them survive because these, these people on Reddit, Ran the stock up, right? And 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 then there's this feedback loop that of people seeing make money, so they make more money. So anyway, that's that's kind of how the stock market operates. And, and and what it what it means is is that it's inherently unpredictable. It just absolutely is. And you know, nobody was predicting the pandemic when it happened, or a stuck boat in a canal, and people were expecting the the war with Ukraine. And when it happened, people thought it was going to be over really quickly, and they didn't. The the what's been going on with Israel and Hamas that that wasn't predicted. I mean, none of this was predicted. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, back in um, 2011, there's an investment manager we use. It's a deep value. We use their international product. Right. And I remember like 2010, they were like, oh, you know, we're, we're overweighting Japanese stocks because we think they're undervalued. We think Japan's really, you know, set themselves up nicely for growth and they're just going to do great. So, you know, we're doubling, you know, the, the, the IFA in terms of our, our Japan allocation. And of course, in March of 2011, there was an earthquake that caused a tsunami that slammed into the coast and the Fukushima, you know, reactor and, you know, he had all the devastation and basically tanked the economy and the Japanese stock market with it. And a few months later, we had a a call with his manager and we were, you know, kind of nicely. I mean, we're not dicks. We're, you know, we're from Missouri, you know, Midwest, it was Midwest value. So we're like, kind of like you shit the bed, you know, you know, what a bad call. And they're like, no, 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 no. It was a great call. How were we going to predict an earthquake? And the the point here is they're missing the point. Like you don't get a Because earthquakes, wars, pandemics, terrorist attacks, boats stuck in canals, like you don't get a mulligan for that. That's that's the point, right? That that it makes it unpredictable. So what we tend to do is say we don't know. And the power in that, and I'll tell you, it works extremely well. So like we're working in the mainly hundred plus million family crowd, and we're going up against all the time, you know, the Goldman Sachs, the other big wirehouses, Bessemer Trust, and other multifamily offices. And what we say is we don't know what's gonna happen. And we're going to invest like we don't. And everybody else is going to be running around predicting this or that. And they continue to predict and they continue to predict. So long-winded answer of saying, we don't know. But I will tell you, based on past history, so if you go back to like 1926 and you roll it forward, the stock market's been up 70% of the time. I just wrote an article in Forbes on this and um, what my stock market prediction is. My stock market is it'll probably be up because it's usually probably up. And it was my same prediction, by the way, the four prior years, Uh, right every single time. Because it says probably be up, but it might be down. So even in twenty twenty two, it was down eighteen percent. I was like, well, it could have been down, and it was, right. So it's actually you know really useful to to keep you know to keep that in mind. But you may be like, well, what about when the stock market's up twenty plus percent? Well, when the stock market's up twenty plus percent, the following year, the median return is eleven point one percent, and it's up about sixty five percent of the time. So again, don't know what are interest rates going to do. Don't know if like, if you put a gun to my head and said, you have to bet, I'd say, I think they'll probably drop this year, but most people didn't see the historic, you know, 5% increase in interest rates over, uh, you know, by the fed over, uh, 15 months, they didn't even see it. They didn't predict this. And if the fed can't predict interest rates, then how can you, and if you work with a financial advisor and investment expert, ask them, what do you, what do you think interest rates are going to do? And if they tell you, you should almost be like, "Mm, not the advisor for me. Because they probably didn't say two years ago, oh, you know, we're going to see this historic rise in rates and it's going to give us the worst return in bonds in the history of the world. They just weren't. So uh, my, my answer is I don't know. (laughs)
0: I love it. So it might be up. It might be down. I love it. In all seriousness, you do bring up a a good point is to say, hey, and and you skip past it. I don't want to miss this, folks. So what John said is, hey, we invest. We just no ego. We just say we don't actually know. We can't predict everything. You don't get a mulligan if there's a war or some inflationary event or an earthquake. So if you can actually admit you cannot predict it to any serious degree, and you change your investment thesis to reflect that to say, we invest as though we don't know. We know finance and we know what we're doing. We could find, you know, where's the profit and the growth rate? So we can get a sense of how much meat is on this bone, as I like to say. Yeah. But in reality, when you're looking at the systemic risk or the beta or for, you know, some of you quants out there, I know I, I see you. So some of you predicting some of the systemic risk is saying it's really hard to predict that. And so if, you, If you change your investment thesis to reflect the fact that you're saying it's hard, but that doesn't mean we can't invest. It just means we need to stop trying to make individual calls and start trading more on macros and around that and just say, look, it could go up. It could go down. This is where hedge funds sometimes come into effect. But regardless of how you manage the known unknowns, there's also unknown unknowns and appreciating those that whole sphere is High finance it is maturity in your investment thesis, and it is how you manage a fifteen billion dollar family trust. I absolutely love that, so it's anyone's guess where the market's at, where it's going, so I absolutely love that yeah and this, this doesn't mean that you can't be smart about you know investing yeah I mean because a very powerful,
1: powerful law of the universe is regression to the mean, right mm-hmm. so it's it's not like you can't like you just sit there and you do nothing and you throw your hands in the air and, and the fact that the market will probably be up this year. And over the next 10 years, it almost certainly will be up. And over the next 20 years, it will definitely be up. And again, I, I, I say that obviously, you know, we could have, you know, something that, you know, we could be sitting like we're in Japan in 1989. So, so I'm not saying that, the, you know, the, the past is an absolute law, but just playing the probabilities, it's almost certainly going to be up over 20 years and, and 10 years. But it, it's not that you can't do anything, but it does tell you that if you're sitting on cash, you probably shouldn't. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, so I have, I have a, I have a buddy that his, uh, his family, they sold their company. Uh, in early 2023 for a lot of money you know uh, hundreds of millions of dollars he started his own family office that he he runs he's super super smart guy but he was he was working in the business before and even though he has a business degree you know he ha- he doesn't have a lot of hands on experience with investing so i've been helping him right and so you know we put together you know some asset allocations and i introduced him to some different you know investment managers and things like that you know our firm we have we we often work with families when they have an exit from a business that's the number one reason hopefully before the exit cuz we can help with some you know, more of the the tax and estate planning and, and even the psychology (laughs) of it. But, you know, sometimes it's afterwards. So, you know, in in our 21 year history, like we've, we've helped families invest, you know, I don't know, five or $6 billion of cash. So it's a, it's a ton. So we've seen what works and what doesn't. And really what, what works is you know you, you typically you know even though the odds are in favor let's just go invest it all in one day <laughs> you know but it could be like oh it's March of 2000 or it's you, you know you know it's October of 07 so you know you're, if it's your one big bite at the apple you're 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 better off usually spreading over a year or 18 months or something so you know the best way to do this is you pick a day on the calendar and say I'm going to do this percentage this day and this percentage this day and this percentage this day you know kind of over your your time period and then you do it come hell or high water okay so in helping my friend. His uh, like third tranche to invest out of, uh, I forget if it's like four or five, but his, his big tranche to invest is on Halloween. And at every tranche, we have a morning call and I say, come on, Dave, like you're going to do this. I know it's scary. I know it's hard. Trust me, do it. So on Halloween, we have this call. He's like, I'm not going to do it. Everything's horrible. Remember, you know, the interest rates were, were you know, going up and it's like, are, are we finally sliding into recession? The stock market was you know way down from its, you know, midsummer high. And he's like, I don't see any, any reason why I'd invest now. I said, I, you know, I don't either. I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know that th- you can control yourself. You have to follow the discipline. Come on, hold your nose, do it, do it. He did it. And look at what happened in November, November, 2023, the stock market had one of its best monthly returns in 30 years. And so we talked on de- December 1st and he said, thank you so much. Like, this has been amazing. My family made so much money this month. And I'm like, I know. And it just shows you, you can't, you cannot possibly know. And I'll tell you, I don't know if I could have done it, it as my own money. And it was tens and tens of millions of dollars. And, uh, but I'm an advisor and I can advise and I can help people do the right thing. Right. Man. I love that. So the point is, it's, re- it's just really hard. It's really hard to know what's going to happen.
0: Yeah. And investing like that and and appreciating that fact can really help shape a very effective thesis. So as we round third base, let's really help our listeners to level up, according to John Jennings. So what would you say are two or three things that you could really leave behind as far as cheat codes that really help people understand, I don't know, raising capital, how to allocate it, anything at all?
1: Yeah. I'll tell I'll speak as somebody. And it's like you said, we're sort of like an institution. Um, I mean, we're, we the way we invest is closer to institutional than if I, we were a single family office. So let me explain a little bit of psychology of like the difference between an ultra high net worth investor, or maybe someone that has their own single family office. And then like us as a firm. So like, if, like if I was a, like one of our clients and I had my own single family office, like I could direct how things were going to be invested or hire somebody, you know, to help me do it. But if something did really poorly, like I, I wouldn't fire myself because it's my money, right? <laughs> and if if I if I do a direct investing deal, invest in a in a, in a business that goes to zero, I'm like, well, you know, I tried, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but when you're investing money for other people, there's there's two things at play. First of all, you feel a, a, like I feel a deep sense of responsibility for our clients and their their assets. And like when it's when it's down, like I feel really like I feel really bad. And I feel really responsible. But the second thing also is is like we're also in business. To make money, and people have tend to have short memories, and like if you're down too many years in a row, you get fired. Or if you put them in and say, "Oh, let's put a million dollars in this, you know, this restaurant." <laughs> you know how how do you how do you create a small fortune? You start with a large fortune, and you you invest in a restaurant. No, but or or you know whatever business deal you do, and it goes to zero. Like you as an advisor, also running a business, you're like, I don't want to get fired, right? <laughs> so, so you're in a situation where you're not going to invest the same way. Maybe you would invest yourself if you were in their shoes doing it for yourself. Right. Right. Because so, so what we do is, you know, we're, we're more methodical. Like when we do private investing, which we, we do quite a bit of private investing, but we're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to invest in funds. We're going to diversify vinegir and you know type and style. You know we're going to have our you know our, our our buyout and our growth equity and our venture capital and our private real estate et cetera. And we're going to do this, and we're typically going to invest in funds that have a track record, you know, that have worked together, that have shown some success, because there's even though there's basically no persistence for public stock managers, you know, from one period to the next. There's pretty high persistence for, you know, private managers. And, and so it it makes it a challenge. So for, for newer funds, it's really hard to get someone like us to allocate to you, because even if you're going to be fantastic, there's more risk for us, not just even just for our clients, but also for our business. Right. And and it's why if you, if you hire somebody else to invest your money, you're going to get returns that aren't like this, they're going to be more like this. Right. And, and, and it, it happens with, you know, stock managers, you know, people are buying and selling stocks. I mean, I see this over and over again is, you know, they'll give up on their discipline before they'll get fired by everybody. You know, it's like we, we had this, this manager, this is a great manager that we, we, uh, we use them for small cap growth, but they were a GARP manager. So that it was growth at a reasonable price. Right. And, you know, I forget the years, probably like 10 years ago, but they, they had. Been producing all these really strong returns, beating the small cap growth index. Uh, this was back when small caps beat large caps. So it was great. Like it was, it was amazing. And like one year they had, like, you know, like this 55% return and the next year, you know, not good. Next year, not good. Uh, six months later, not good. And it, and it was because that small cap growth during this period, a lot of, uh, a lot of tech and biotech companies were really leading the returns and, Growth at a reasonable price means that you're not really going to buy companies that don't have you know positive earnings, which a lot of these companies had. And they sub-advised to a mutual fund company, so they managed three billion dollars. Two billion of it was with a mutual fund company and a few different funds. And the mutual fund company fired them, and they went from three billion to one billion, yes. and their people started leaving. Yep. So we fired them. Oh boy! And everybody else fired them, and they went out of business. And this is a manager that had a a very good process and discipline. They they, they were great. I I have like little doubt that. They they would have returned to do really good in the future, but they went out of business, and it's because they they stayed by their discipline too long. I mean, and yet that's what you have to do to outperform. And we actually prefer, uh, you know, even on the public equity side, uh, where we're going to do an active manager. A, a lot of them have lockups. People are like, "Why would you do a lockup with a public stock manager?" And we're like, "Because it allows them to do what they see is the right thing to do without having to worry about." You know, clients you know pulling money out. So, um, so just just realize that that's part of the reason it's so hard to raise money. You know, from from institutional and why they want that, and it's why you know if you see big pension plans and, and it's, they're only doing you know the KKR's and the Apollos and the the Carlyles and and everything. And, it, and it's because first of all, they have a lot of money to invest, and second of all, it's a sure thing. They're like, oh, you know, we don't care if we're right around the median in terms of of private equity returns; it's good enough and you know, we don't want to take the risk of, you know, going to with a, a smaller or newer fund Man, the world works.
0: Yeah. And you know, you and I have talked about, it, and you've told me a little story of a study that you read about, um, endowment funds. Oh yeah. 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 And, and actually I did the study. Oh, you, you did the study. Okay. I missed that part. And so what, what happened
1: is, 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 um, you know, everybody, everybody wants to invest like, you know, the top endowment. So it's, it's called either the Yale model or the endowment model. Yeah. You know, as, as you pointed out, Ryan, you have the book, you know, David Swinson, he was the, the chief investment officer at, at Yale. Uh, so he published yeah. it in 2000 and basically said the way Yale has been able to be the number one endowment and, you know, really provide these just amazing returns is, you know, we, we do less in fixed income. We do more in alternatives, you know, especially like private equity and, and, and venture capital, private real estate, you know, you know, these people running around buying, you know, timber all over the world and things like that. And what happened is people Wanted to emulate that. And I'm like, oh, here's the recipe for higher returns, right? And, and I think it, it really made its way, you know, beyond just the nonprofits, the endowments and the pensions, and it made its way into, to individual, individual investors. And I think what's, what's fascinating about it is, you know, if you go to your broker at, you know, Morgan Stanley or whatever, and I could pick on any of them, like, what are the chances that they're going to put you in the sort of stuff that Yale does or, or Stanford or, you know, Penn or, you know, Washington University, where I teach has been in, um, two years ago, they are the number one endowment return. They've been in top five each of the last five years. And, and like, but but what Swinson said when he, he did the second edition of his book in 2009 is is very few institutions and even fewer individuals can afford to put forth the resources or have the access to replicate these sort of returns. And so what I did is there's this um, study that comes out every year from Nabucco, which stands for the National Association of College Business Officers, and TIA from TIA-CREF. And what they do is they survey, uh, I think there's 735 university endowments, most of which are north of a billion. And they say, you know, what are their returns? And I did this a year ago, so I haven't updated it for the last fiscal year returns. But what we found is I took a a simple 70-30 index portfolio. So it was the All-Country World Index, X-U-S, it was, you know, the uh, basically Russell 3000 and then the Bloomberg Act. So those were the three things, 70, 30 um, equity, fixed income, and then compared it to both the median and the average returns of uh, university endowments. And they were indistinguishable, exactly the same for one, five, 10 to 15 years. I mean, within within, you know, 10 and 20 basis points. And what that tells you is for every Yale and WashU and Stanford and Penn that's out there that's, you know, killing it. You have all these other institutions that aren't and realize that they all have the professional staff and or have, you know, uh, expert consultants and everybody's running around trying to generate, you know, outperformance. And really, all they had to do was have it a 70-30 and they'd be at the median. And in fact, I um uh, the, the chair of the of the Washu Washington University's endowment. Um, he actually lives out in San Francisco and he used to be the chief investment officer officer at Stanford when they were, you know, the whole time he was there, they were, you know, a top five returning endowment. And, you know, what he did is he came in, um, you know, Washington University was kind of having these, you know, kind of median returns. And he he basically fired everybody, he hired a new chief investment officer and staff and uh, name's Eric Upin, amazing guy. But he said, one of the things they really look closely at is whether they should just do a 70-30 index. And then they they, they ran some numbers and said, well, what if we levered it, you know, 1.1 times or 1.2 times. And like if you levered a 70 30 index portfolio 1.2 times, again, they'd be a, you know, you'd almost be guaranteed to be a, a top, uh, you know, decile university endowment. Is, is what you would be. So it's it, it's it's pretty fascinating. And and there's another uh, there's another paper that was was done called What Would Yale Do If It Were Taxable? And it said, yeah, the the Yale model and these endowment models are great for you know nonprofits like like these university endowments or pension plans. But what happens if you have to pay taxes? And what they did is they they reverse engineered based on Yale and their returns and their asset allocation, like what their assumptions were. And they said, now let's, let's add in taxes. And what they found is, is that they would greatly increase their amount of public equities, especially their index funds, that they would Get rid of their hedge funds. <laughs> you know, and it basically it was this much different allocation than the, you know, than the university endowment. I think one real blind spot in the industry advising ultra high net worth clients is, is advisors don't see the taxes usually. Like we're a multifamily office. We, we are very involved in getting the taxes done. We review all the tax returns. We see them. We give our clients reports on taxes. And unless you're seeing it, like you can look at a, like a, like a, a gross of tax return, you're like, oh, that's, you know, pretty good. So even if you're doing the endowment model and you're, you know, right at that 70, 30 or maybe a little better, you're like, look, we're killing it, you know. But the thing is is that after taxes, if you're investing like an endowment, it's like a bloodbath, right? So I think every time you look at anything, you gotta say, I'm gonna tax adjust it. So like we we invest almost nothing in hedge funds. And it's because of how tax inefficient they are. I, mean, I can't say we, we never invest in a hedge fund, but we're we're really skeptical of the hedge fund because of the of the of the tax hit. And there's different types of alternatives. So again, you know, private credit is a big deal. And again, you you gotta you you gotta run what the taxes are on private credit and say is this worth the lockup on an after-tax basis, right? So I think that's that's in, incredibly important when you're working with ultra-high net worth in, investors as opposed to a nonprofit organization.
0: You know, and and just to echo on that, I'm sure you get maybe some emerging fund managers. I'm just hallucinating here. But, you know, it, it would be putting myself in your position. And so when you've done this study and you find out, say, you know, really active management, it really comes down to a 70-30 was some of that from the endowment side and then you may have some so we're talking about pitching people like yourself and so if these managers come in and they're like we're gonna outperform the market i would just imagine you if i was in your shoes would be like really okay i gotta hear this so you, to, to outperform you need one of three things yeah okay here's here's the three things
1: yeah fine you, you need to have better information mm-hmm. than the market or the other people yeah you have to have better analysis or you have to have better behavior right mm-hmm. and, and and on the public stock side yeah. And and I, and I like to ask this to, to public stock managers. Sure, you know which are the three? Do you have? And it's almost impossible to have better information in public stock, right? Yeah, it used to be the case that you could get you know you could get better information. That's that's basically gone now. So it's it's not better information. Yeah, better analysis. Okay, so some firms are like we have better we have better analysts. We do better analysis. Maybe, but the the problem. So the problem is 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 that we only know our experience, and it makes us overconfident. And we know that we're good, and we're smart, and we're doing a great job. But like. The, the seat we're in, we, t- we you know through my career, I, I probably talked to I don't know four hundred you know public stock managers. And at first, like the first one you meet, you'd want to give them all your money because you're like, oh my gosh, you are so smart, your your analysis, your style is so good. And it'd be like the, if you ever met one NFL wide receiver, you'd be like, oh my gosh, this guy is going to be like MVP, like he's tall and he's fast and he's strong, and he's got these great hands. But like once you've met a hundred wide receivers or a hundred cornerbacks or safeties, right? You're like, oh. Dude, they're all playing against each other, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. right? And, and that's how we kind of are with these public stock managers is it's really hard to have better analysis. And once you, you meet with 10 or 20 of them, you're like, okay, they, they do have uh, some differences, but they're all really smart. Okay. So really what you're left is the better behavior, right? And, and where we tend to hire public stock managers is where they have the behavior piece and they say, yes, we behave better. And that's partly where the lockup comes in. Mm-hmm. Like, it allows them to behave better because they don't have to be subject to the whims of their investors taking money in and out. And, and the same th- thing is true in private investments. And but there is a little different. Like, you you can't have better information, right? And and maybe in a particular industry. And again, it's because um, you know if, if you're going in to buy a company, like if you're in the business of buying companies and you're buying from a family that has had one company and this is their one seller. And a lot of them are like, oh, I don't want to pay an investment banker, right? Bad idea. You should have an investment banker, right? (laughs) Like I I see it all the time. Our clients are like, oh, we're going to sell our business. We don't think we need to pay, you know, three, four 5% to investment banker. Like, no, you absolutely do. You will absolutely get your money's worth because, you know, there's this almost information asymmetry. Somebody that's used to buying businesses versus somebody that doesn't, usually sell businesses and you can know more about their business and this it's not insider trading. You can, you can dig in and like, so there's, there's, there's this, this ability to have better information, maybe even better analysis and definitely better behavior in private investing. And, and I think, um, really as a, a private, if you're a private investment manager and you're selling into someone like us, it's really explaining, you know, kind of what that is and you know, what's your, you know, what's your differentiator? Like what, what are you doing that's different than just the guy down the street? And, you know, can you prove it's correct And you know a key thing that we look for, especially for like an earlier fund, is you know really the quality of the people. Yeah, I mean we're we're investing in people always. Like that's who it is in in private investment. You're absolutely investing in the people. And like we have these ten things that we go through, whether it's a a direct investment or a fund. Like these ten flags that we look for. Number one is the person. And you know. you know, the whole uh, Peter Thiel thing in his book, Zero to One, he talks about, you know, like secrets, you know, and yeah, I'm, it's, it's in the blue section. I know it's a, <laughs> a lot it's, of blue books a, in a, my background, but he talking about <laughs> secrets and like, you know, um, and, and Ben Horowitz of Andreessen Horowitz says this, this great, you should Google it. He, he did this commencement address at the Columbia University School of Engineering, I don't know, probably eight or 10 years ago, but he, he taught, he, he puts it so eloquently. He's like, you know, if you come to me and Andreessen Horowitz and go, I have this great idea and my idea is something to make batteries last longer and like cell phones. He's going like, that's a great idea. And I'm not going to invest because everybody thinks that's a good idea. You know, Panasonic and Sony and Samsung, everybody's all working on that. But he tells the, the, the story of uh, Franceschi when he comes in. He's like, I have this idea and it's, uh, you know, I'm going to rent out an, uh, I'm going to rent out an air mattress in my guest room. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And he's like, and, and my secret, my, my se- it, it, Ben Horowitz tells us so much better. My secret is it used to be that, you know, there were like, you only traveled kind of like by horseback and y- you knew the quality of the ends kind of around your area, you'd ask around. Mm-hmm. It was only once we had, you know, cars and airplanes and trains and everything that you needed, like Howard Johnson's and Hilton's and Marriott's. So, you would know, the quality of where you're going to stay. And we don't need that anymore because we have the internet, right? So you can have pictures and reviews. So, you know, that launched Airbnb and, and like Ben Horowitz was like, when I first heard this, I'm like, this is a horrible idea. But he invested because it it was different. So the the key there, what we tell our clients all the time is like our clients will get excited by an idea. Like you don't know what a good idea is. If it sounds like a good idea, it's probably not a good idea. Right. So so what that leads you to like in our 10 things, the idea is number 10. So the people is number one. So you're investing in the people and you hope the people have the crazy ass idea like luxury electric cars or build your own teddy bear, like something that sounds so ludicrous, but you're investing in the person and like build your own teddy bear. I, I say that because Build-A-Bear was, is, is based in St. Louis. And, and the person who created it had this long career in retail, right? And like she knew, she knew retail, like so well, had successes, had failures. And people are like, we're going to invest in her, mm. even though the idea seems crazy. Like, why would you pay to build your own teddy bear? And obviously it took off. There's like 5,000 stores. Damn. So, so, so that's, that's really what we get into. And it, so it's the people. So how can you put your people forward? And I'll tell you, a key thing is if you have a fund, you know, we, we love the number one thing is, do you have a lot of skin in the game? Mm. One thing we want is like, if a fund comes in and, and I understand early fund, you're not going to have like, this much wealth. But when a fund can come in and they're like, Oh, you know, 10 or 20, or even 30% of the fund is made up of employees in G- of the, the GP. We're like, okay, that's awesome. We love that. Or if it's, you know, you're, you're, you're newer, but you're like, yeah, basically almost all my net worth is tied up in this fund. Like we want to see that skin in the game. It means that you believe, because the, the thing that I think is, you know, really damaging about this industry is so, and the industry, just an investment in wealth management mm-hmm. is it's all about playing with other people's money. Right.
0: And you're like, no, it's my money too. That's, uh, yeah, that's so key. I love that. So having skin in the game. Now, when it comes... So you're, we're kind of dancing around this and, and I want to dive a little bit deeper. So if somebody comes, right? So we have a lot of emerging fund managers that listen to the show, entrepreneurs, anyone, especially anybody raising capital. That could be any of those groups. And so when it comes to pitching a family office, um, what have you found works or, or doesn't work? What advice, uh, not only from your personal experience, but maybe as someone trying to pitch you, what have you found nailed it or and, and blew it?
1: Yeah. So I'll say like I get so many me- emails a day. And again, we're a multifamily office. So we're out there, like we're marketing, we have a website, you know, we want, we want to gain, we, we like to add three to five client families a year. So we're like, we're in business. Single family offices are very you know different. They're, they're very, you know, usually very private. It's hard to get any information on them. You're not going to know how much money they have. So, you know, like Ryan started out to say, like, we're, we're a little bit more like the the, the institutional money, but I get, I don't know how many emails a day from investment managers and also, you know, plane charters and art people and all this stuff. And, and I get it. But like, I'm not going to answer those emails because if I spent my time answering those emails, I wouldn't have any time. You know, like the the cold calls, the cold emails, like they don't work. Like, I, like even if somebody's like, oh, you know, we're we're, we're delivering these amazing returns, I'm like, yeah, everybody has amazing returns, at least in their marketing, <laughs> or you know, they're past this one strategy or whatever. Like, I'm sort of skeptical and a little cynical, right? And the only time I will actually even read an email or respond to it is when they start like in the subject line or right away. Like they're if, if somebody sent me an email and said, basically the subject line or right away, I read your book and I thought it was fantastic. And here's three things I learned. I'll be like, oh, he spent five hours reading my book. I'll spend some time, you know, interacting or whatever. Or, you know, I have this, this, uh I have a blog that I, I produce uh, do twice a week. People are like, oh, I read your blog post on blah, blah, blah. I thought that was great. I'm like, oh, it's making more about me. Or if they're like, you know, here was what we can do for your clients. But still like even, even that with emails, I can't think of a single, like person that emailed me, even if I responded that we actually even took a deep dive to allocate capital It's because there's so many other things out there. And as great as you may be, there's a lot of other greatness Mm -hmm. and it's, it's hard to, you know, separate out, you know, what's, what's what. And then, you know, I go to some of these conferences that are like, Oh, you know, this family office or the family wealth conference, like truly family, like single family offices are almost never there. (laughs) Like they, they, they just aren't like the only time I'm around you know, a bunch of ultra high net worth people that have, or want to have single family offices, you know, I'm involved in, you know, YPO Young Presidents Organization. Um, I'm YPO Gold. I'm over 50 now, but you know, we have a, we have a family office network and I'm involved in that, you know, and there's very strict code in like YPO that like, you're not there to market. You can't sell. Right. So if somebody wants to contact me, great, <laughs> but like, I'm not going to go get the list of people that were there and start like banging them with stuff or, or, you know, whatever it's about you know, relationship building. So, you know, really, really the the way that the times that, you know, we've actually met with a manager that, You know, kind of reached out is when it when it's through someone we know or one of our clients. So, like you know, I've met before where a lawyer has said, "Hey, you know, would you meet with these people?" And 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 I know what the kind of the lawyer is doing. Like for they'll have some sort of vested interest in this investment manager, and they're like, "Hey, we're coming to St. Louis. Do you have anybody to meet with?" And it's kind of more of a favor to the lawyer because it like makes him look networked and good for them to come in and meet with a you know a firm of our you know size with the sort of clients we do. And so I'm kind of doing it. You know, the lawyer is like calling in a favor, right? Um, But our clients all the time. Are bringing stuff to us and we'll look at it like and we're like yeah we'll give it a, an absolute shake but it's got to kind of come through a, a, a client because we just don't have the time and the bandwidth to be just you know wrestling down everything that you know we get you know get pitched or you know pings us so it's it's really a relationship business and in terms of getting into single family offices that that this really. It's just really hard. They're really private. Like we have some clients that have single family offices and we like kind of fill in the gaps and, you know, support them. And, you know, we'd love to work with more single family offices, but there's no like great list out there. And even if there was, I know enough not to be like, oh, we're just going to email single family offices. So, you know, really for me and why I speak at a lot of events is first of all, I love to speak, (laughs) but I I want to be like, okay, I'm going to give value out into the world. I'm just going to put it out there. And if somebody, if my message resonates, give me a call. But like, I'm not paying anybody, right? And it, and it happens sometimes. But what I had to do is I had to do a lot of study and research and spend a lot of time and I've used speaking coaches and, and I practice, you know, eight or 10 times before I give a speech, like straight, straight through, because I'm like, I'm going to, I want to create an amazing, amazing speech where people learn a lot and they come away going, I really learned something. And, and if nobody ever calls me, that's totally fine. But that's kind of how we've tried to get into, you know, the ultra high net worth single family offices. I mean, most of our, you know, we're almost exclusive re- referrals. We, we you know rarely get calls just like, oh, I heard you speak or I read your book. I mean, it happens. But um, it's mainly, you know, we, we share a family with a lawyer and then they have another family. And they're like, oh, you should call, you know, St. Louis Trust or an existing client. Oh, you're exiting your business. You should go to my advisor. They work with families just like ours.
0: Awesome. And cold calls. Sounds like cold calls don't work. And, and you and I, we've exchanged uh, some some scar tissue on this one, but very often, and, and same with me, folks. So I, I obviously invited John uh, just through our own relationship, but often, you know, having a top rated show uh, or a large institutional thing, it, it attracts people in, in that industry. And often, and it's the exact same thing, if I can echo what John's saying, even from my own experience, a lot of people want to support me and help out. And it's so kind of them to do that. But not, I'm, it's just not possible for me to answer everybody. So the ones I'd get yeah. an answer, and, and John, feel free to disagree on this uh, from your experience and on your side. But the ones that I give an answer to is exactly what you talked about, man. They, they lead with a give, right? We talked about being generous and being a giver. And some of it, someone's like, hey, I've been a big fan of your show. I went ahead and gave you a review and it's an honest review. I love it. I actually, my favorite episode is this where you talked about that. And I was like, what in the, this is, am I talking to, is this fan mail? What's happening right now? And yeah. And, and so they, they actually talked about it and they were a PR rep and they wanted someone to to come on my show. And I was like, Absolutely. Now, obviously, they still have to meet some requirements, but the ones I get is they led with a give. And even if that's a compliment, that's uh, they they like to social media post, if that's who you are, whatever it is, find a way to add value, to contribute, to add uh, anything at all, right? Like John, hey, I read your book, John. I really love this chapter where you discussed XYZ. And that reminds me of a thing. I'd love to talk to you about that thing. Oh, Okay, well, you definitely have my attention. So I I can't impress this enough. And the other thing that you you alluded to, John, and I and I don't want to gloss over this just for our listeners' sake. You and I I know what you're talking about, but I really want to really underscore this: is that some of these events are a waste of time. Now, last May, I spoke. I was with Ed Milette and Jim Rogers and Jen Gottlieb and all these these people on stage, and there's about thirty 35- yeah, five. Some,
1: some are great. Some are great. Yeah,
0: some are great. And I was on stage, and I said. Um, and, you know, I totally set him up for this, but I said, who here has been to a local networking event? 3,500 emerging founders. Everybody raises their hand, right? That's a lot of people. It's a good sample size. And I said, who here's raised money from those? I swear, John, you could hear a pin drop. Not a single hand went up. And I was like, why do we go to these things? And the problem, the reason why we still go to these things and don't raise any money or don't pro- progress our business or whatever it is, is because everyone there is just as bad as you are. Everybody's going to take. And so guys like John or guys like myself who who are allocators... We don't go to those things because everyone's like shoving their business card down your throat. They hire me to be your accountant, your lawyer, your dry cleaner, your, your personal trainer, your landscaper. And you're just like, oh, my gosh, this isn't even fun. Yeah. And so these networking events are not great. If you're trying to find a family office, you might. Sure. But in finance, we play statistics more than calculus. So the probability of what John and I are saying, is probably kind of low going to these networking events. So how do you get in the room with a guy like John? Well, he just told you. I just told you. Start with a give. And it doesn't have to be money. It doesn't have to be a gift. Probably that would be weird. But something sincere, that is what we're saying, is show us that you've paid attention to our firm. Showed us that you've paid attention to me. Like, we're very easy to do due diligence. Yeah. And so doing that and leading with a give and that spirit of generosity, I'm telling you folks, and John is telling you the same, it can literally open doors for you. Would you disagree? No, I, I, I totally agree. I, I think it's great. It, it's absolutely, and it, it's
1: tough sometimes like, you know, how do I, you know, how do I act as a, you know, a, a giver? And I think it comes back to the, you know, almost, you know, don't put seeking money or seeking status or, yeah. you know, fame as your, your thing. Like we can smell it you on know, you. If, you gotta, yeah. If it does, you can totally, you know, as you put it, smell it. It, it, it. Absolutely. So, you know, I think it's so important to be like, uh, you know, be passionate and believe in what you do. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. There was this this article that was published, I don't know, a year or two ago and, um some, some sort of a, a periodical for like people out in Silicon Valley. I'd never heard of it. Somebody forwarded it to me. It was called Choose a Good Quest. And it was, it, it was really, these two people wrote it. And it was kind of a screed against a lot of people in Silicon ba- Valley at, that were, you know, creating things Basically, because they wanted to make a lot of money, and and what there is a great article. Um, um, if if you Google it, you know, choose a good quest in Silicon Valley, it'll probably come up. But it, they they talked about like, you know, you got to think, do, does someone, do people really need another dating app or another like video social media app or, or this or that, like, you know? And I think like about Mark Zuckerberg and like, like at the end of the day, is, I mean, maybe somebody else would have done it too, but has he chosen a good quest? I mean, look at look at what social media has done to the fabric of our lives and what it's done to our democracy, like. Yeah. Like, has he chosen a good, has he chosen a good quest? And I think part of it is, is whatever, whatever company or business you make, like you have a non-financial reason for being and say, you know, I want to create a company that's going to make a positive dent in the universe. And, you know, it's kind of like in star Wars where the death star blows up that planet, you know, and like the, uh, you know, Obi-Wan is like, you know, the, the force just, you know, screamed and, you know, that's the sound of, you know, like a billion people dying or whatever, you know, you know, I want to have a company that if it went out of business that like would disrupt the Force. And then part, part of that is, yeah, being a giver and just doing the right thing and all that. But it's also telling the truth you know, and I think you heard that with my, you know, my market prediction and my entire book is telling the truth. Like when I give talks on it afterwards, and it'll be people like in the financial industry, like afterwards they're like, Oh my God, that is the first, you are the first person we've ever heard speak at an investment conference that has ever like completely told the truth.
0: <laughs> that's, <laughs> and, that, that's,
1: know, that's kind of, that, that's kind of our goal. That's, that's, you know, that's, that's our goal. But I think as you, as you create your fund or your business or whatever, it's like, you know, you know we we probably only have one life right so go do something good and great and if you do the money will follow but like don't it, it, like Ryan said you can smell when somebody's just chasing the money or you know Stabic. when somebody starts a business it's like just because i want to be rich and and there's this uh, fascinating every single year since 1965, a sampling of entering college freshmen has been done where they ask them all these questions. And back like in the late 1960s, like one of the questions every year was, it, talk, it talks about like, what are your top priorities? Like, um, you know for your life and like college and here on out. And one of the questions is, um, you know, I want to create a, a like a, a meaningful philosophy of, of life. Okay. And like back in like 1967, 1968, like 74% of entering college freshmen said that was one of their top priorities. And they also ask, you know, how important is it to be rich or financially successful? And back in 1967, 68, it was like, you know, like 30% or something. Well, those have completely flipped. Like over time, you could just see them, like the, the, the two that just like, you know, converge and, and now like And I forget the exact numbers that it was last year, but it's like 80% of entering college freshmen say that one of their top priorities is to be financially successful and developing a meaningful philosophy of life is down to like 25%. And, and, you know, I think it's just a reflection of our society. I think social media makes it worse. And they always say, you know, we're all comparing our insides to everybody else's outsides. Mm. And I think that happens. Like you look at these people that are on Instagram or TikTok or Snap or whatever, and, and you're like, Oh, look, look, you know, they're, they're, have all this, you know, these houses and these trips and their lives look perfect. And I want that. So I have to have money. And it, none of that is true.
0: None of it. Wow. So would you say that that is, you know, it's kind of converging into a, a third helpful tip is some of these things you mentioned that are helpful to you. So you mentioned showing it was so pitching a family office. Number one, you said the thing that impresses you is showing that the GPs have some stake in the game or the founder, wh- whatever it is. If it's a direct investment, a startup or a fund, whatever it is, show that you got some skin in the game. Number two that you mentioned just now is show that you have a non-financial reason for existing. Yes. Obviously you need profit. We, we, we know that guys, like if you pitch us, we know you need profit.
1: You look, look at Theranos, look at Elizabeth Holmes. Why was she able to raise all that money and have like George Schultz and Jim Mattis and all these, you know, these people on her board and get the, you know, Betsy DeVos and the Walton family. And uh, uh, I think Larry Ellison invested and all these, you know, it's because she told this amazing story. She mm. said, you know, as a, as a child, I was always scared to get my blood drawn. And, you know, I'd have to have all, you know, maybe she was sick or something. She's like, I I hated it. And so, you know, we're gonna be able to run all these blood tests with just a a pinprick. And, and she told the story of like, you're going to be able to go into Walgreens. You're going to get this entire array of tests and imagine what this is going to do in emerging countries. It's going to completely change medical care in the developing world. Like this is such a compelling story that people just started throwing money at her, even though it was a fraud. Yeah. Like, and we can all learn from that, not to be a fraud, but the power of like, she's like, I am going to change the face of medical care and save millions of billions of people's lives by this new technology. And people are like, yes, let's back up a dump truck, take whatever money you want. Right. And I think we can all learn from that. And it's not the, it's the power of stories. And especially if they're powers of stories of like, I want to make a dent in the universe. And like my dent is I want to spread truth and transparency, surrounding the entire wealth management industry. And then I want to help my clients live more happy, fulfilled life in the face of wealth, because it's like, you know, more wealth makes you happier, but also more wealth brings with it more challenges, more burdens, um, you know, you know, how to help people live like, like better, more
0: fulfilled lives, even though they're rich. Yeah. Reminds me of uh, an old poet I used to listen to in high school, Biggie Smalls. Right, <laughs> more, more yeah, money, more yeah. problems. Right, wasn't that him? Yeah, exactly. And you know, um, and then what would you say, just just to round out this thought on like the things you like to see when when getting um, when some of the deals that you did end up funding? How have you found? Because there's some there's the debate is out as far as people sharing their failures, hiding from them, or being upfront oh, with them. Yeah. How, how have you found? What does that mean if you've got a GP or a founder in front of you that said, look, I'm, I've got this amazing opportunity. I've done that. I'm going to change the world, right? They got all those things. They've got skin in the game. They've got a non financial reason for existing. They're telling a compelling story, but then they're like, look, I haven't always got it right. I've, I messed it up. I had, you know, a couple good startups, couples that failed. Here's what I've learned, whatever that is. How do you find when people are open? Cause you, you, value honesty and transparency as much as i do we love
1: it, it. And, and we 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 ask you know whether it's a direct investment or a, a fund or you know even a public stock fund we we ask about their failures and you know things that they got wrong and some of the things we're like you know what were were you mo- most confident of that you you know you got wrong and we, we want to hear that and we love it when you know they're like oh yeah my you know my 2013 vintage fund was a you know fourth you know it was down in the the, the fourth quartile and, and here's why and here's what we got wrong and here's how what we learned from it you mm. know it's just so important in fact i heard um i have, I have this friend that uh, you know, runs a single family office, and but he also has a, a very successful. I think they're a fund three or four, you know, fintech fund. And he was on this podcast, and this this podcast host asked this great question. He's like, you know, what's your, you know, like, tell me some some mistakes. He's like, oh, you want to hear about the zeros? <laughs> you know, here, let me tell you a few. And it was so fascinating. Because usually you don't hear people come on podcasts, you know, and he was telling this this story, there's like some beverage, you know, and like what he didn't realize is, you know, they had this great beverage and this great price, but, you know, it like they, they didn't realize the games that need to be played to get to the part of the shelf where the consumer would see it. Like they were down like in the corner, right? you know, and, and they're like, we didn't, we just didn't know. We, we We didn't know that the company needed to play this particular game to get like where you could see him. You just couldn't see him. So if you can't see him, you can't buy him, you know? And it, it was just, it was, that was one of the stories that was just fascinating, but like, we want to hear that because everybody, like if you, if you've done this for long enough, you're going to have some failures and, you know, Put them out there, and here's what I learned from them. I I will tell you, like if all you've had is failures, yeah, that's a problem. But you know, (laughs) you know, but it don't hide from your 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 failures. And you know, I'll tell you one thing that tips us off. Whenever we see, you know, again, I'm talking about like public stock investment firms, like when they're when they're just touting like their since inception number, and that's the you can have a since inception and have that graph or whatever. That's that's totally fine, but. If that's the only thing they're hanging their hat on, it, it gives us pause because like an early manager, like if you're starting and you know, you're managing $10 million and you, you put up these huge returns and then later you're managing a billion dollars and your returns aren't as good, you know, you know, maybe your since inception looks really good because you were either lucky or, you know, a different manager or it was a different time period when, you, you know, you were, you're were killing it back when you were, you were smaller. But if you look at how your investors have done, well, most of the money came in later. <laughs> you know? So if you're just looking at like a since inception, if you were there from day one, which almost nobody was, and again, it's not, you don't have that, but you know, be, be honest, you know, about your, you know, be honest about your returns. And you know, if you're coming in, don't just show, okay, I have three funds and I'm going to show the one that has a good track record. No, show all the funds. Cause we're going to ask like anybody that's any decent to do We're like, show your other, show us your other funds. It's like, Oh, well, you just made it look like you, you know, had discovered alchemy. You know, yeah. it's like, well, this was one fund. The, you have these other two, you know, and that's and that's the game that's played in the mutual fund industry. They, you know, they, they seed five funds and then they, they let them run for three years and then they, they merge three into the other two at the end of five years. And yo, know, we have all five star funds. Wow. So 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 there's all these games that are played that were like you're just better off, even if you're not playing that game, you're better off just nipping in the bud saying, Okay, we're gonna be completely transparent. You know, we have this investment manager's it's kind of interesting. He he only invests in banks and thrifts. It's kind of interesting. But Every time there is a really bad month, I get a call. In fact, I even say to him, "Like, like Joe, you can stop calling me. Like, you know, it's fine. You don't need to call me when there is a bad month." But I appreciate it because he's like, "We had a really bad month." And let me tell you, you know, not just banks and thrifts were down, but we were down more than the you know the, the KBW Bank and Thrift Index or whatever. And and here is why, and here is what we learned. And 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 I, I appreciate it. But on the other hand, I'm like you can stop calling me, Joe. But like I am like I trust this guy. Like I am going to put other people with him because I if they want to invest in just banks and thrifts, but I I trust him. <laughs> because he's he's straight up he's he's straight up yeah. and i don't know like 50 percent of the fund is his money
0: so he's got <laughs> he's got those elements right so you know what he stands for he's got skin in the game and he's very clear
1: And he, he used to be a bank examiner he worked for the fed as a bank examiner i mean it's like his his his, his understanding of banks is like uncanny and what he'll say he's like i have better analysis analysis. Because I'll tell you everybody else is covering banks wasn't a bank examiner, and most of them are covering multiple industries. Like any other firm you go to, it's like, oh, I'm covering banks and this and this and this. And it's like I only do banks. I only invest in banks and I only, you know, I, I know about it because I was a bank examiner and then I worked at a, a, a big firm where I was the the head analyst on you know on on financial institutions and I've been doing it a long time and, you know, give me these, these younger analysts that are covering, you know, four different industries and have never gone and closed a failing bank as a regulator.
0: <laughs> Man, I, I absolutely love it. This has been a phenomenal conversation, John. Uh, enjoy mixing it up with you, brother. Uh, as always. Yeah, so, me too. Thanks. Um, so just as we, as we wrap things up, any closing remarks, any thoughts, any ways, if there's people out there who have a hundred million or more under management, they want to contact you ways to find your book. I mean, yeah, anything sure. at yeah. all, anything at all. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Just to leave behind, like if you're, if you're interested on in more of, uh, you know, us, me or, or book or anything, uh, my website is John, J O H N M as in Michael jenny's.com. All one word, johnmjenny's.com. And you can find my blog there. It's called the interesting fact of the day. I think my tomorrow is going to be on uh, a set of research papers and it's, it's kind of, uh, kind of known as, uh, uh, ego, egoism bias or responsibility bias. But, you know, one of the main studies is they took married couples and they asked them like, what percentage of the housework do you do? Like what percentage of the child care do you do? What percentage of like doing the dishes and like the totals between the husband and wife were way beyond a hundred percent. Right. So, <laughs> so each, each person was thinking that they do a lot more than the other person. It's because you know what you did. Like you like, I unloaded the dishwasher today. So I'm feeling pretty good, but you don't realize that maybe your wife did it three times yesterday yeah. or you know, what, whatever. So it's, uh, it's, 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 pretty fascinating. So I write on just interesting things like, like that on my, my blog called the, uh, the interesting fact of the day. I always love new, uh, new subscribers, Uh, you know, things like, you know, why do females have uh, uh, neither handwriting than males? Why do competitors like Lowe's and Home Depot or, you know, uh, Walgreens or CBS? What do they often have their store together? So, you know, just interesting stuff,
0: man. well I love it. And I I always uh, like when you post them on LinkedIn as well. And I I definitely follow and like a lot of the, the things you put there too. So just to summarize everything, folks gain knowledge, especially on allocating, read a lot of books. And the second thing is learn the right way to pitch a family office. John gave us a whole discourse on things that work and and don't work and finally have skin in the game a compelling reason for existing and don't shy away from your failures you do these things and you too will be well on your way in your pursuit of making billions wow what a show i hope you enjoyed this episode as much as i did Now, if you haven't done so already, be sure to leave a comment and review on new ideas and guests you want me to bring on for future episodes. Plus, why don't you head over to YouTube and see extra takes while you get to know our guests even better. And make sure to come back for our next episode where we dive even deeper into the people, the process, and the perspectives of both investors and founders. Until then, my friends, stay hungry, focus on your goals, and keep grinding towards your dream of making billions.